0: Good morning, morning. turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. Man, I'm glad to be back, feels good, I'm excited. Uh, As I asked you last time I preached, uh, please keep the tomatoes to the pews, Uh, I don't want Tony to have to clean up too much, so, (laughs) right. I've entitled today's message, The Glory Belongs to God. Jesus, our Lord, our God, our Savior, what a wonderful name, right? The way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life, the light of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Holy One who came to seek and save that which was lost. Are you with me? The one in whom, if we place our faith, will completely and utterly and permanently save us forever. The pure and holy, innocent one who paid the ransom for the impure and the guilty. The perfect God-man crushed for the iniquities of others. The king who was not too lofty to humble himself and become a servant of man. The pure and holy, innocent one. The righteous judge and yet the justifier of sinners. The creator of the world and yet the washer of feet. The one who embraced death out of love for his people though he was the author of life. Praise his name. Give him the glory. The one who possessed all power and yet willingly surrendered that power to become a humble Infant, the free one who was nailed to the cross to set the captive free, the good one who paid the price of the evil. I call upon us to praise this magnificent friend. But have you ever considered that all the praise and glory for our salvation actually belongs to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, as well as God the Son? Church family, every member of the Holy Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, deserve the glory for our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together as one family in one mind to worship you. Lord, I ask you to take any dumb thing I might say and have it forgotten, but Lord, any word that is from you that you desire for people to know, I ask you to sear it into the minds of the people here. I thank you, God, for all that you are and, and the salvation that you have given us. Teach us from your word today. In Christ's holy and precious name, I pray. Amen. So notice as I read from Ephesians chapter 1 how the outline of the passage flows. It flows from the Father to the Son and then to the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing is that in the Greek, in this passage, it's actually just one long sentence. All the way from verses 13 to 14. It's all one sentence, one cohesive thought. And the reason it's written that way is to illustrate the triune work of God in our salvation and how they work together to accomplish that goal. So reading now, starting in verse 3, we see the text start with the Father. It says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Secondly, it flows into the sun starting in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will." To the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And then finally it flows into the Holy Spirit starting at verse 11. In Him you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of of his glory church family there is a a lot of ways that i could say this but what's from my heart and what i want to proclaim from the rooftops maybe i should climb into the bell tower is that when it comes to our eternal salvation all the glory belongs to god in his entirety because god in his entirety saturates every aspect of our salvation God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the one in three, the three in one. Amen? Amen. So first, let's look at verses three through six and discover what God the Father has done in salvation for you and for me. Skipping verse three for a moment, and I have a reason, we'll get back to it, but first let's look at verses four and five. Notice that God the Father, before he created the world, had already chosen us. Looking at those verses again quickly, they say, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Ponder this. God has forever known His children. Think about it. If God is all-knowing and eternal which he is, amen, that means what? If God is eternally all-knowing, that means there has not been one moment from eternity past to eternity future that God has not known you and loved you. Isn't that beautiful? God's love for you, child of God, has a depth and length beyond time itself. Forever has His heartfelt affectionate love been tightly woven around your soul. Like a mother holding her infant in her arms or a father having his child in His loving embrace, so our souls have been embraced by the love of our Father for eternity. You who doubt God's love for you, you who question if His love withers or wavers, Let your heart come to peace with this promise of the Lord. His love has not withered or wavered for one moment since before the beginning. For every moment in which God has existed in eternity, He has known you and He has loved you. At the end of verse 4, it says that in love He predestined us to adoption. So that means before your soul was formed, before your decision in Christ was made, His love was already poured out over you. His love was already being lavished upon you before you even entered your mother's womb. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Notice something else amazing about these verses. When the Father predestined us to be holy and blameless, He also determined we would be His children. His sons and his daughters. The father could have kept this as a master-servant type of relationship, couldn't he have? He could have kept us as the peasants and him as the king. But no. It says that he decided we'd be his children. What a God. He didn't just want servants and slaves. He didn't desire to just purify us to be his subordinates. Rather, out of his kindness, love, and eternal affection, he chose us to be his children. It's amazing. And now back up to verse 3. In verse 3, we see that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Let's read it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Think about that. It's such a blessing to be forever known by God, isn't it? I mean, what a blessing it is to be called his child, to have the author of the universe desire us with such a heart of love and affection. What better blessing could we ask for than the sacred favor of the most supreme being that there is? But the blessings don't stop there. God showers us with Every spiritual blessing. And I believe this means that He has given us who believe in Jesus every possible thing we could ever need as His children to succeed. Our Heavenly Father deserves so much praise and glory for His grace, which I believe that Paul points this out in verse 6. Let's move down there and read it again. It says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In the last part of this section describing the Father's role in salvation, we see here in verse 6 that God's grace was freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. That means it was not out of compulsion or guilt that God predestined us and gave us these spiritual blessings. It was not because He felt like He had to. It was freely from the heart of love of our Father according to His kind intention. Oh, praise His name. My daughter, Aviel, I'm already very protective of her, as any father should be. And I'm sure you fathers here can relate, and the mothers, I assume, as well. I don't know. I'm not a mother. But (laughs) I'm very protective of her. And do I protect her? Do I keep her from, when she's older, wandering in the street and things like that because I feel like I have to? Is it like, ah, fine, I guess, since I have to, I won't let her wander in the street. You know, no, not at all. We protect our children because we love them. And if we feel like we're under compulsion to protect them, it's because of our love for them. And that's how it is with God. He doesn't bestow his grace upon us from compulsion. It's freely because of his love for us. And it wasn't for anything we could give back to him, was it? I mean, what could we give back to God It says to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. I don't protect and love my daughter so that someday she'll take care of me or help me. I protect her and love her because that's just how I am. I love her, and that's how God is with us. And without restraint, He drenched our spirits with every spiritual blessing that there is. And so, of course, our response should be to praise Him. It should be to lift our voices and our lives and our actions to praise Him. But again, He did not pour out these blessings so that we would return anything to Him. He poured out these blessings because of who He is, because of His heart of love. Let that cause us to spring into praise even more affectionately. By the way, who qualified us to be the partakers of this amazing blessing? The Beloved. Who is the Beloved? Jesus Christ. We see in verses 3 through 6 that we serve such a marvelous, loving, gracious Father who from these characteristics before the beginning of time predestined us to be children of His through the Beloved. Which brings us to the next section of this scripture, continuing to verses 7 through 12. Let us consider, secondly, what God the Son has done for us in salvation. It says in verse 7, in Him we have, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So we see from this verse that God the Son redeemed us. Because were we in any such condition to receive such blessings from the Father? Did we deserve anything good coming down from heaven? I would argue not only were we not deserving... But it would have been against God's character to bless us in such ways, apart from the blood of Christ. The condition we were in before we were saved was completely and utterly undeserving of any good thing. And still, the only reason we deserve heaven now is because Christ earned it for us. It's not because of anything we can do. The Bible's clear, before we were saved by Jesus, we were entirely evil. Every thought and intention and desire boiled down to an evil heart. Sin corrupted us to such an extreme extent that we were unable to even do one righteous act, because no matter what, our motives would be tainted by evil. Romans 3:10 through18 says this. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what the Bible describes us as before we were saved by Jesus. Do you think someone like that should be blessed by God in such amazing ways? God will not bless someone like that unless their sin is paid for and they are transformed. Because you don't give awards to thieves, you don't give medals to predators, and you don't give praise to murderers. So God does not give eternal life, everlasting love, divine grace to an evil, unregenerate, and unrepentant man except by the blood of Christ. And do you think someone like that can earn their way to heaven? Anyone who thinks they can earn their way to heaven. I want to speak to you, and this is not meant to bash you or offend you. It's out of love. You cannot earn your way to heaven. In fact, it's offensive in the sight of God to try, but he'll let you. He'll let you try to climb that rope of sand. He'll let you try to leap over the 10 million mile high walls. He'll let you try to claw your way through the unbreakable barrier between you and him. But it's not what he wants for you. It's not what he asks. And he promises you one thing. If you do not repent, you will perish in your sins, in your futile efforts. You will perish under the all-consuming weight of your sins. But it's not what he wants. The Bible says that God wishes for all to come to repentance. But it's true that every attempt and striving and bid to earn your way through the pearly gates will not only be denied, but they'll be counted against you. Because what's worse for someone that's $10 million in debt, what's worse? Humbly declaring bankruptcy or dropping pencil shavings at the feet of your debtor, declaring it should be enough to pay off your debt. Your righteous acts and my righteous acts are but pencil shavings in the sight of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. All we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. God has cried out, There is one way to him. There is one road. There is one gate. There is one person. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is your only hope. He is your only way. Let Him make you good. Let Him in the blink of an eye save you completely and utterly and forever. Let Him take the price for your sins. Let Him redeem you. He hung there on the cross while the Father poured out the wrath stored up for my sins and for your sins so that we could be saved by placing our faith in Him. So if you're trusting in your works and not in the finished work of Christ, I beg you to repent from trusting in yourself and then believe solely in Jesus' death on the cross for your sins. He died for you and for me because He loves us so much and because we couldn't earn our way to heaven. It's the whole reason Jesus went to the cross, because we weren't enough in ourselves. The Bible says it pleased God to crush him. Why? Why did it please God to crush Jesus? Because your sins and my sins are so atrocious in the sight of God that it was pleasing to finally let the dam break that held back his divine wrath. It pleased him to finally pay forth the justice he so desired to give for so long. Finally, the way to satisfy his righteous judgments was here. But not only that, the way to also redeem his beloved children was also here. Jesus on the cross. And that's why Jesus willingly went to the cross. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans three twenty three through 26 He writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. And now listen to this. It says, Because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies, the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus on the cross is God's perfect justice and God's perfect love coming together in perfect harmony. And for those who believe in Jesus, he saves. He delivers them from the power of their sins and they are free to have good intentions, good desires from a changed heart with a destiny for heaven Romans 8, 2 says that Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. So you who doubt God's love for you, did he not prove his love enough? Has he not done enough to satisfy your doubts? What more can he do than to offer his entire self full payment for your sins and adoption into his family? What more could he do I beg you to accept His love. Believe His love. And if you have not trusted in Christ, believe that He died on the cross for your sins and that He rose from the dead and be saved. As verse 7 says, God the Son did all of this according to the riches of His grace. Extremely interesting. In verse 8, notice this. It says that it was not from ignorance that He lavished His grace upon us. Let's read that verse. It says, talking about his grace, it says, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So as God drenched our spirits in love and as he saw every day of our life and as he overflowed our cup with grace and mercy, he poured out his love. He did not care that we made these mistakes because he saw that Christ would redeem us. He, he did not let that hold back his love. And it's not like he didn't know how we were going to turn out. He saw everything. It says that from all wisdom and insight, he poured out his love. He lavished us in his grace. So it was not from ignorance that God had his affectionate love flood over us like a consuming wave. It's not like God did not know the horrible mistakes we'd make when he lavished us in his adoring love. He knew and he saw every. Day of our lives, and it did not stop him. Jesus, God the Son, in perfect insight, and according to the master plan, lovingly redeemed us. We serve an amazing God, amen. amen. There's plenty more I could say about this section describing the son's role in salvation, but for sake of time, we're going to move down to verses 13 and 14 and see what God, the Holy Spirit, has done for us in salvation. There are two roles in this passage uh, it brings to our attention that the Holy Spirit fills. The first is the Holy Spirit seals us. Let's read verse 13. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Once we believed the gospel of our salvation, what happened according to this verse? The Holy Spirit sealed us. What does that mean? There were three purposes in Paul's days of of sealing. And I believe that all three reflect what the Holy Spirit did when he sealed us. The first purpose of sealing in Paul's day was to prove and attest to something's genuineness. It was like a stamp showing that something was authentic. It was genuine. It was certified. It was true. In the same way, the Holy Spirit sealing us, shows and certifies that salvation has happened. It's proving that it's authentic. The Holy Spirit is God's proof that we are genuinely saved. The second purpose of sealing in Paul's day was signifying ownership. They put hot wax on a letter and press it with a unique ring, and once they did that, it signified their authority and ownership of the one who sent it. In the same way, when we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, that's God's authoritative mark signifying His ownership of us. It's God saying in the most authoritative way, this person is mine. They're as mine as they possibly can be. My own spirit is within them. They are completely and utterly mine. The third purpose of sealing was to ensure security and safety. If someone powerful sealed a letter, that meant this letter was not to be opened until it reached its destination. That seal was a very powerful mark ensuring that letter's safety until its arrival. In the same way, God sealing us in the Holy Spirit is God's mark ensuring our safety until we reach our destination, which in verse 14 tells us that our destination is the redemption of God's own possession. So if you have believed in Jesus for the salvation of your soul, the Holy Spirit is in you, attesting to that fact and that you are genuinely saved and that you are owned by God and that you are safe and secure until you reach the destination. What's the overall takeaway of this? It's that we who have the Holy Spirit are genuinely owned and protected by God. No, you cannot lose your salvation. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit You cannot undo all the work the Holy Spirit did the moment you were saved. That would kind of defeat the entire purpose of the Holy Spirit sealing us, wouldn't it? You cannot take the Holy Spirit out of yourself. If you've truly believed in Jesus, that God the Son died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose from the dead, you are secure, and you should rest in that fact. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is not a process that happens and then unhappens and then rehappens every time we have doubts or that we sin. We are sealed, and that's the end of it. Your destiny and your eternity is safe if you have believed in Jesus. I read something online the other day that made me chuckle. Someone was asking if they could lose eternal life. And someone commented, that, that depends, can you... Have eternal life for 15 minutes? It, it just goes to show that it, the term eternal life would be quite meaningless if you could lose it, wouldn't it? Because eternal life means never-ending life. How can something be never-ending if it ends? It means everlasting life. How can something be forever-lasting if it doesn't last? Eternal life is eternal. It is everlasting. Once you have it, it never ends. You can and should rest secure if you have truly believed in Jesus. John writes to this point in 1 John 5.13. He writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wanted those believers to be sure of their salvation if they believed in Jesus. God wants us to be sure of our salvation if we believe in Jesus. Moving now to verse 14, we see the second role that he fills is that he is the pledge of our inheritance. Let's read verse 14. It says, Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. God's making an extremely, extremely powerful promise here. I've seen this security measure before, I'm not sure if you have, where someone ate a big fancy meal at a restaurant and then they, for- they forgot their wallet so they didn't have a way to pay for it. And so what they did is they'd leave a, something very valuable of theirs, like their watch or their ID, their wedding ring, something like that, so that the restaurant can rest assured that that person will come back with payment for their meal. I think I did this when I was a kid with my shoe. I would left it at a friend's house so that he knew I'd come back and give him the video game I had from him or something like that. God did this on a whole other level. He didn't just leave us with something valuable. He left us with someone, someone beyond value beyond priceless. He left us with the Holy Spirit as our pledge of inheritance, as a pledge that we who are saved will spend eternity with him. I don't believe there's a stronger promise that God could have made than to gift us his own spirit as a pledge that we are his forever, that we are secure in our inheritance of being with him for eternity. Yet people still doubt their salvation after truly believing in Christ. And it's insane. But I understand. Because sometimes doubt comes knocking in my door too. But church family, God has given us a promise. More sure than anything else. He's put His own spirit on the line. One of the members of the Trinity to prove that He is serious about making us His own. Let's believe Him. And when doubt knocks, Let's lock the door. And as the demonic lies from hell shout from the other side that we are not secure, let us shout back that we are going to trust the promise of the Lord, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and because we have believed in Jesus, we are His for eternity. The only time that someone should question their salvation is if there's no evidence of a changed heart in their life. If you sin constantly with no repentance, and you have no desire for good, you should double-check if you've truly believed in Jesus because He will not leave your heart the same. Once you believe, He will change you. And again, one last time, I want to speak to anyone who doubts God's love for you. If you've believed in Jesus for your salvation, He's given you the greatest pledge of His love that there is. He's given you Himself. He's gifted you the Holy Spirit to pledge to you His love. There's no greater love than the love we find in the Lord. Someone asked me the other day, how can God love me when nobody else does? The truth is, not only does God love you right at this moment, but God has loved you for every moment in eternity. There has not been a single moment from before the beginning of time that God's untarnished love has not completely covered you from head to toe. God says that those who have been saved by believing in Jesus have been known by Him and loved by Him for eternity. Never has His love not been lavished upon you, even before you were born, before your parents were born, before the very first humans were here God's love was entirely surrounding your soul and adoring every corner of it. God has forever known His children and He has loved them ever so deeply for eternity. And from His good and kind heart, God has devoted His whole self to salvation. The whole Trinity works together to save us from our sin and bring us into His loving embrace. Let us magnify His great loving name, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Lord, we thank you so much for how you have completely devoted your whole self to saving us from our sin. Lord, we as sheep have gone astray, every last one of us, but you've come to offer salvation freely. We thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you do. And any that have not placed their faith in you, God, we ask you to move them to do so today, and that they will wait not a moment longer, because you have loved them before the foundation of the world. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.
1: Nate, don't go anywhere. I have some questions. Uh oh. <laughs> Nate has, has made some rather strong assertions here today. Um, one of the, this has a lot, you mean to tell me that if I place my faith in the Lord Jesus, I can have complete and total assurance. Yes. You're saying that if I place my faith in Jesus right now, that if I went outside and dropped dead, I would, what? You would go to heaven, absolutely. Positively. Positively. The reason I bring this up is is because... And I lovingly say this, but people who are brought up in Roman Catholicism, one of the things they don't have is that assurance. My sister-in-law was brought up that way. When she heard that she had assurance, it blew her away. You're telling me, am I correct? That if I trust in Jesus, God's known that from eternity. Eternity past, eternity future. You're, you're saying I'm his child?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: He said some things about the Holy Spirit that were fascinating. We're sealed? Sealed. Until when? Till we get to heaven. My Bible says until the day of redemption. Until we're there, right? Mm-hmm. Signed, sealed, and delivered. 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 That's you know, this is powerful because because a lot of people have doubts. And this message that he has brought here today, thank you so much, is a message that says, You shouldn't have any doubts. Hallelujah. Am I right? Yes. I, I took some notes here. You said that. You said that if God puts the Holy Spirit in me, that certifies that I'm born again. Yes. Just checking. (laughs) You're saying that if I trust in Jesus, I belong to God. Yes. Of somebody in my family recently reminded their mother that the Bible says we're in the palm of the Father's hand, and that what no one can what snatch me out. That's assurance. But Nate, you read—I don't know where it is in your notes. You got a lot of them. <laughs> but you read from First John. Was it chapter five?
0: Yep, verse thirteen. First John five thirteen. Do you
1: kind of remember? Not—I don't know if you have it memorized, but can you part of that? What? What did
0: it says? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. No,
1: no, no. no. Which means what? It means we're secure. It means we're secure. It means we're secure. I, I really wanted to pound on this because I thought this is such an excellent message. And I know because I talked to some of you after services that we have some people that are still, so to speak, they come, but they're a little bit outside the fold. Because they don't realize what we mean when we say, if you believe in Jesus, you're truly saved. That's the message that we proclaim. Amen. I think that's a fantastic message and certainly should lead us into song and worship as we close. So let's (laughs) stand together and do that. Thank you, Nate.